Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'm happy to be with you today to talk about one of the key metrics that we mentioned a few weeks back when we did our key metric overview. We promised at the time that we would have individual sessions on each of those key metrics. And today is the first as we dive a little deeper into break-even occupancy. We're going to talk about what it is, the benchmarks that we use in assessing the performance of an asset using break-even occupancy, how you move break-even occupancy, what are the things you can do to improve uh, the performance uh, relative to that metric, and, uh, and a few other thoughts about it. So thanks for uh, joining me this week. One of the things that I do every week, and I would, uh, I'll be remiss if I don't do it again, and that is invite you to drop me a line with any questions or comments that you have, or if you're interested in learning a little bit more and setting up some time for a chat, I would be happy to do that. You can email me at pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And feel free to swing by the website, marapolling.com. Lots of good educational content there as well. Break-even occupancy means kind of what you think it means when you hear the you hear those three words, right? Uh, break-even occupancy. What's the level of occupancy you need to have to break even? And by break-even, we mean break-even on a cash basis. So... The definition of break-even occupancy is the minimum level of occupancy that we can have at a property and still generate sufficient cash to cover all cash expenses and the debt service. So tenants pay rent, right? Somebody writes a check for $1,000 for their rent for the month, and so does everybody else in the uh, property. That money comes in, we pay property taxes, and we pay for insurance, and we pay for the staff, and we pay um, the landscapers, and the internet bill, and all the other stuff that goes on in terms of running the property. And there's, and we're done with that, there's money left over. By the way, that's NOI, right? Revenue minus expense, that's the NOI number. NOI continues to come up, that's why I mentioned that. It is the key metric inside all of these. And then from NOI, you subtract the, any other cash expenses that you have, which would include primarily the mortgage payment, right? And any, anything else going on with the, uh, uh, with the lender, as I said, we talked about insurance and um, um, taxes, which typically are going to be paid uh, uh, to the lender into a reserve account. When we're done, we've got cash that's left over. And the way Mara Polling operates then is we write that uh, check uh, from using that cash and we send that off to our uh, investor clients. And that's how they generate and see and realize their cash on cash return. So what we want to know is just how low could we go from an occupancy standpoint and still generate sufficient cash to be able to cover all of those cash uh, expenses. Well, when we do that math, we'll come up with a number, um, right? So we take the, 
uh, occup the uh, cash that we need on a uh, on a monthly basis, right, to cover the um, the expenses that I described and the mortgage payment and so on. Uh, and then we take the average rent and the number of units we have, and we do some math, and what we end up with is a number. Uh, let's say it's um, 88%, right? Let's just use that as an example. 88%, that means that this property at 88% occupancy would have enough cash coming in to meet the cash that needs to go out without touching reserves or anything else. But if it dropped just a point below that, if it dropped to 87, there wouldn't be sufficient cash. All right, so is 88% a good number? What's the benchmark? Well, for us, and we think this is a good rule for everyone to follow. So if you're looking at making an investment in a, a property that you are going to manage on your own, I'd encourage you to do some analysis that looks like this, some stress test that looks like this. When we purchase an asset, this is absolutely part of our acquisition criteria. And if you're looking to invest with someone like Mara Poling, I'd encourage you to ask about what stress tests they run their uh, acquisition targets through so that you can understand um, what level of rigor is going into those, uh, to those acquisitions. So again, we've got an example, it's 88%. So is that a good number or a bad number? What's, what's that mean? And we, we don't wanna be subjective, right? We don't wanna do this from a, my gut says kind of thing. We wanna use data. So where do we get the data to make this assessment? Well, we get it from the property itself. We'll go back and look at the historic level of vacancy at that property. And then we'll make an assessment as to what the high uh, vacancy number had been. So for example, in our 88% number, let's say we go back and we look and currently maybe this property is performing really well. Maybe it's only 7% vacant. Uh, that's a really good number. Um, so at 7%, we think, well, gee, 7%, 88, that seems like a pretty good buffer. We look historically, though, over the last year, two years, four years, five years, eight years, 10 years, um, and generally, that's the kind of time frame we like to, to get. We like to see at least five years of history, ideally something closer to 10, and we're looking for what's the peak vacancy. Um, so you look back, and as we've talked before, um, class B assets, which is where we invest, are absolutely affected by the economic cycle. You will see spikes in vacancy. Uh, and that's something that should be expected with any class B investment. When a downturn occurs, and you know, we're headed for one, Lord knows when it's gonna get here. It's been, it's been on the verge of uh, arriving for some time. But when it does arrive, we're gonna see a spike in vacancy. Generally, class B assets spike. They don't, they don't have increases in vacancy and then stay high. They spike, and we've talked about some of the reasons for that before. So it's a, it's a one-time hit, and then it drops back down and stabilizes, which is why we like class Bs. So we might look back and see that this particular asset that's currently at 7%, maybe it had a high vacancy, a historic high vacancy of 11%. All right, well, gee, 11%, that would be 89% occupancy uh, and break-evens at 88. That sounds kind of tight. <laughs> that doesn't sound very good. 
the benchmark we use is this, is we want to see that break-even occupancy number at least 150% of historic high vacancy to 200% or more. That's what we want it to be able to handle. So on our 11% example, right, we got a property that's had a 7% right now, but the historic high that we can see in this data that we have access to says it's been 11 then we want to be able to handle about a 16, 17% vacancy to as much as maybe 22% or more and still be cash flow positive, still be breaking even. Well, 88% obviously doesn't do that. You would need to be, so what is that, 16, 17%? You'd need to be around 83% in order to be at that 150% range. You'd really need to be 78% to be at that 200% um, range. And typically that's where our properties fall, into the low 80s, the high 70s, something like that. Um, that's a sign of a good quality, robust asset. So think about that for a minute. Let's think about that benchmark. We're looking and saying in, in the last at least five, maybe 10 years, here's the poorest performance this property has had from an occupancy standpoint, from a vacancy standpoint. And then we're saying we want to have a cushion on top of that that's equal to 50 to 100% of that very number such that you could have vacancy twice what the historic high has been and still be cash flow positive. Uh, that's a really good cushion. We talked about sleep well at night um, uh, a couple weeks ago. That's a sleep well at night tool, right? That, that really helps everybody relax and say, wow, this is a good quality asset. Um, and that's a, that's a good positive. Now, one of the things that we like about these sort of conservative metrics and this is part of our philosophy at Mora Polling is, you know, we're looking for stable, secure investments, and then we're going to optimize cash flow and equity growth and take full advantage of the tax advantages in the code that are available to commercial real estate. Uh, we want that security. We want that uh, stability. So having a, this cushion is going to do that. But that also means, if you think about it, if, if that's where break-even is, then that means any occupancy higher than that is throwing off cash. So if our break-even was 88%, like I said at the beginning of this example, then that's, there's not a lot of room there to throw off cash. If you're at 89 or 90, you're throwing off cash, but you've only got a couple points of vacancy helping you throw that cash off. If the break-even is 78%, then at 80, at 82, at 85, at 86, at 90, you're throwing off more and more and more cash. So being secure and stable, focusing on those items doesn't mean that we aren't going to have assets that perform in terms of cash and equity growth and tax performance. It simply means that the priority is focusing on that security and stability component first, and secure, stable investing actually does increase financial performance. This is not one of these um, situations where you think, well, if I'm going to lower my risk, I'm going to have to accept a lower return. 
we're certainly not generating swing for the fences kinds of returns, but these are not low returns. Uh, and, and it's in part for what I just described. That break-even occupancy number is a number that we don't expect we're ever going to get near, right? Um, that's the whole idea is that there's enough cushion in this asset that we're protected. Does it mean you couldn't get there? Of course not. It could happen, which is why we keep cash reserves and other tools uh, that help us in those particular situations if they should ever happen to occur. Knock on wood. All right. So, uh, so break-even occupancy is the minimum level of occupancy at which there's enough cash coming in to pay all the cash expenses. We benchmark somewhere around 150 to 200 percent of historic high vacancy to come up with what that number is that we want to hit. Some thoughts about how you improve it. So if we're doing an acquisition and we put our underwrite together, we put all our input data in that we've gathered and sourced from data-backed locations, right? So we aren't just pulling numbers out of thin air, but we're getting information either off of a trailing 12 set of financials or out of um, uh, some data tools that we have access to, and we're using those to populate our underwriting model. And when we put that together, our break-even number is 88%, like I just said. And we've got this property that was 7% today, but historic was 11. Well, gosh, we're, we're not where we need to be. We need to be down at least around 84, 83, and we'd really like to be 80 or even a little under 80. So what could we do? Well, you could do things like you could go in and say, well, let's just make the rent higher, right? So we'll just increase the rent more. Or you could go in and say, well, we'll just, those expenses aren't really gonna be that high. We'll simply reduce some of the expenses. And that would absolutely make the math work, but that's not how you improve the performance of an asset. It's certainly not how you take risk off the table by saying, well, I'm just gonna go in and play with these other levers in order to make it perform better. That's absolutely what you don't wanna do. The things that can be done and that we have done on occasion, and people will often ask why we use certain loan to values when we put our uh, debt structuring together, is, um, is in part because of this, because we wanna have that cushion. So one of the things you can do is you can go in and you can simply change the amount of leverage. Instead of if you were structured to have a 75% loan to purchase price, you could go in and say, well, what if we did 73%? You know, a lender might approve you for 75, even 80%. You don't have to take all the money they approve, right? You can go back and say, before close, this is the amount we'd actually like to make the, to make the loan for, and we can pull that number back, right? So, so that's one of the things that can be done. Now, when you do that, you're not changing the amount of rent people pay. You're not changing the expenses the property has, but you are changing a fairly substantial cash item, which is, uh, the amount of debt service, right? Because you're reducing the amount of debt that's out there. You could also just change the way the debt is structured, right? So there's a lot of different tools out there from a debt standpoint. Uh, we have a wonderful finance team that we work with that helps us uh, access the markets. Uh, everything from uh, agency debt, Freddie and Fannie, to uh, short-term uh, debt, to CMBS, um, you name it, there's lots of different product out there that can be tailored. Uh, some have um, greater flexibility in terms of exit options. Some have lower uh, rates and longer term uh, commitments. 
Uh, some are going to support higher leverages. Some are going to be focused more on lower uh, leverages. There's a lot of different ways to put it together. So you could go back and alter the structure of the debt, right? So you could go to a, um, a debt tool that has uh, a lower rate, right? So that would have uh, an absolute impact. You could go to one that has an interest-only period, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, but you could go to one that has a two or three year or even longer interest only period associated with it, which is going to lower the amount of debt service you have during that initial uh, time frame, right? You could also just go find a better asset, right? If we've got a property that has a historic high of 11 and our underwrite is only getting us to about 88%, maybe a little better than that, and we're struggling to even get to the 150% of historic high vacancy, it just might not be the right property for us. Doesn't mean it's not a good property. Doesn't mean that somebody couldn't make money investing in it. Doesn't mean we couldn't make money investing in it. It's just investing in it would have a different set of risks than investing in the kinds of assets that we talk about and that we're currently targeting. So we might just pass. Um, that's typically one of, one of the primary reasons we will walk from an asset during this period of time during this initial underwriting phase is if it looks as though it's simply not going to get to a, a healthy break-even number. I mean, we, we underwrite properties, unfortunately, with some regularity where you'll see them where the break-even's got a nine in it. Uh, and I don't mean 89, I mean 90-something. Uh, and that just doesn't make any sense. I don't need to look at any other data at all. That's just that's just a property that's not going to uh, to work. You're going to have to manage that on a razor's edge, and um, that's certainly not a sweep, sleep well at night uh, kind of investment. So um, lots of things you can do and absolutely things you shouldn't do, right? So we shouldn't go in there and just tinker with the, um, uh, the other inputs in order to make break-even look better. Uh, that's that's not uh, that's not going to serve us well. If if we're going to do that, we might as well just not have a break-even occupancy uh, metric. So I mentioned uh, interest only a moment ago, and so this this is something that needs to be uh, thought about as well. Is I've talked about break-even occupancy primarily from the standpoint of the initial first-year break-even occupancy. That generally is when break-even occupancy is at its highest. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense, right? By the time you get to year two, rents have increased. They've increased faster than expenses have increased. That's very uh, uh, much to be expected. They may have increased significantly relative to expenses because of value-add work, which again is something we would typically be doing. And so you've increased NOI, but your debt service hasn't changed. I'm assuming here that we have a fixed rate loan. There is some shorter term uh, debt products that have floating rate loans where that might not be the case, but here we're talking about with a, a fixed rate um, product. So your break-even occupancy number is gonna go down. So if we started at 78%, we might be down to 76 and then on down to 75 and so on and so on and so on. Um, which is great because we're getting more and more cushion as we go forward. If interest only was part of our debt structure, then that first year, that might be one of the reasons we're at a 78% break even as opposed to maybe an 82%. It's because we're not paying that principal reduction. Then in year two, 
uh, we're going to see that decrease in break-even occupancy because of the rent growth and NOI growth. And maybe again in year three, and then it's going to go up in year four. Break-even occupancy will increase. We might be down into the mid-70s. Maybe we're down at 75 and suddenly it jumps to 80%. Well, what happened? Well, if we were in an interest-only debt structure and we now exit that interest-only period so that we are now fully amortizing with our payments, then our debt service is higher. And if debt service is higher because that's a cash expenditure, then our break-even number is higher. So you can't just look at, and we don't just look at that year one break-even occupancy. You've got to look at it over the time, over the entire hold period, over the entire 10 years, if that's what the hold period is, or five, or whatever it happens to be for this asset. And over that entire time frame, are you in? Are you meeting that 150% to 200% or better uh, benchmark that we've uh, that we've set? We've seen assets that look really solid in year one. And suddenly, a few years later, they're not solid. And it's because there's maybe modest rent growth on those assets. And the reason we're performing well the first year or two is because of an interest-only structure, which is misleading. Uh, so you want to look at it over a period of time. If you're doing this kind of work on your own assets, it makes a lot of sense to use a stress test that looks like this. Uh, this isn't the only backstop. Right? This is simply, if you will, the first line of defense. Uh, we maintain reserves at property levels and at, and at our fund level to uh, uh, support this asset, uh, as well as the rest of our underwriting methodology, which uses our 80-20 rule uh, for the other inputs, also increases the security and stability, which ultimately can be manifested here in this uh, break-even number. So we uh, advocate, if you're building your own portfolio, to be thinking about it this way. If you are looking to invest in multifamily and want to learn more about it, uh, this is one of the things you should be talking to folks about. Not everyone uses break-even occupancy. People will have other, other uh, kinds of metrics they use. One of the reasons we like break-even occupancy is it's intuitive and it's simple to understand. The concept of here's how much vacancy we can handle before we get tipped over the edge and we've got a problem seems really logical um, and we agree we think it is really logical so that's one of the reasons why you'll see that with us uh, it is a metric that we report against uh, for each of our assets that we have and if you uh, would like to learn more about how we do that uh, as i said feel free to reach out uh, either go to the website and you can schedule some time with me there on the calendar or you can shoot me an email pat at marapoling.com that's m-a R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. So as I mentioned, this is the first of the key metrics that we uh, did a deeper dive on. And in the coming uh, uh, several weeks, uh, maybe even over the course of the next month or two, uh, we'll be talking about debt cover, uh, about NOI growth, uh, all the different loan to values, loan to purchase price, loan to cost, um, uh, principal reduction, uh, average rent and average rent uh, increases average rent growth and and occupancy, which is um, an important number to understand, obviously, when we're looking at break-even uh, occupancy. So uh, I hope that you enjoyed today's session. Please, if you haven't heard the key metric overview, go back and find it. It was a few weeks back. 
and uh, subscribe so that you don't miss the new sessions that we do as we'll go forward. Uh, and in between all of those, we won't just have uh, whatever that is, six or seven solid weeks of key metrics. We'll have some other sessions uh, that we'll be doing as well. So um, please join us for those. And I hope to see you next week on the next episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling.